And sometimes I think there's a misconception that what I'm saying with the mobile growth stack is you have to do all these things, you know, to be successful at mobile growth. And uh, that's absolutely not what the point of the, the, the framework is. It's actually to help you kind of consider all of the things that you could do to enable you to actually decide which of the things you're not going to do. That's Andy Carvel, the author of the mobile growth stack and a partner at Feature, a mobile growth consultancy. Before launching Feature, Andy led several growth teams at SoundCloud. While there, he created the mobile growth stack, a lightweight framework for strategic mobile growth that has been leveraged by growth practitioners, startups, and large companies like Google. In 2016, Andy left SoundCloud to launch Feature with his colleague and now co-partner, Moritz Dan. What Andy is talking about is the way he envisioned growth hackers, startups, and large companies could use the mobile growth stack, a framework he developed for critical and strategic thinking around the various growth tactics and channels that exist. This is Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Variano, and today we're speaking with Andy Carvel, a partner at Feature, a mobile growth consultancy. Andy began his career as a mobile game developer with Nokia, where he created several games like Space Impact, which was then preloaded onto 150 million plus devices. He then later led several different teams at SoundCloud as they transitioned from a web-only application to mobile platforms. While leading different growth and retention teams, Andy developed the mobile growth stack as a framework for thinking about all the potential channel tactics and how they related back to high-level business objectives or business verticals. The widespread awareness gained around the presentation and sharing of the framework launched Andy and his co-founder Moritz into the next phase of their careers with the launch of Feature. Andy joins us to share his story, how he got into startups, what it was like leading several growth teams at SoundCloud, what motivated him to create the mobile growth stack, what it was like launching Feature, some of the most common mistakes Andy sees others making when it comes to growth, and much more. So let's get started. Hey Andy, thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. We're really excited to have you on the show, you know, to hear more about your story and all the cool things that, that you've been up to as a growth leader at SoundCloud and now with your own growth consultancy uh, at Feature. But before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Where are you from and what did you study? Yeah, sure. So uh, I grew up in the UK. You might not be able to tell that from my accent, which has got a lot more sort of generic over the years. But uh, I grew up in uh, a little village like shortly outside of a, a city called Leicester in, in the United Kingdom. And uh, yeah, I studied uh, my undergrads up in Leeds in the north of England, did an undergrad in computer science. And then, yeah, a few years later, like quite a few years later, actually, I decided to go back to back to school. I went to business school and did my uh, my MBA at uh, Warwick Business School, which is in um, yeah Warwickshire, also in the UK. That's awesome. So where did your passion for tech and entrepreneurship develop? I mean, I think that really I can kind of credit a lot of that to my father. My father was one of the first generation of computer programmers, you know, back in, in the days when there were only a few computers in the country. He was like working on mainframes for what used to be British Gas. It was like the National Gas Company. They had some of the first generation of computers to do things like calculate people's bills and things like that on a, on a sort of national basis. So he was he was writing machine code on punch cards like before I was born. And I think he instilled in me from a very early age this sort of interest and passion for technology and, and computers in particular. 
he brought a home computer home for, for me and my brother to, to play with and taught us how to program it, you know, when I was sort of four years old, which was a long time ago, it was like 1981. So we're really sort of in the very early days of home computing. So I've really grown up with computers since I can remember. Wow, that's really cool. So how did you start your career? What were some of the first few jobs? So my first career out of uh, university was with a company called Nokia, which used to be a very big name in, uh, in the mobile space. And uh, like I actually didn't expect that I would be working for a mobile company. Mobile phones were actually still pretty new at that time in that I didn't own one as a, as a student and you know none of my friends owned one. Um, there was something which you know you saw increasingly like some professional people had them, but they were they were not quite at like the mainstream tipping point just just yet. And so when I um, you know, when I left university, I fully expected that I would go work for a game development studio doing uh, console games. That was like all through my my childhood, I was I was programming games. And uh, you know, when I went to university, it was basically just to get the sort of a, a formal qualification that would like help me get a a, a job at a, at a games company. You know, so I, um, I I fully expected to be going working on maybe a PlayStation game. I, I built a PlayStation game for my final year project at university. Uh, maybe Game Boy Advance game. I, I built one of those as like a as a demo for for my sort of industry showreel. So I was like all set to just go into like the mainstream games industry. And um, I was with a with a recruitment agency who was like specializing games recruitment. They were like trying to find me my first job out of university, and um, they actually came up with this this opportunity to to talk to a company called Nokia, which I I you know I'd heard of them and I, I heard they were kind of big in mobile phones. And apparently they were setting up a games team in the UK and a new R and D facility down there. In the south of England, and uh, yeah, they wanted um, they wanted people with games experience or, or at least a passion for, for programming games to come join this this new team they were putting together. And I was pretty skeptical at first, but I went down there. I interviewed with who subsequently became my boss, really nice guy. Yeah, I kind of got a good feeling for it. He sort of really was able to uh, kind of get me excited about the opportunity. And I think what I liked about it a lot was that you know these phones were very primitive in terms of their capabilities. They were like, you know, 84 by 48 monochrome displays, uh, relatively low processing power, small memory, small, um, you know, sort of small space to store these games. And uh, it was kind of an optimization problem. Even at that time, then it was basically, it was an opportunity to go and make games that were kind of already retro, essentially, and try to squeeze out like the most capability from from a very re- resource limited situation and and that really appealed to me as a programmer from a sort of a, a technical challenge point of view and i think also as somebody who had grown up as you know as a, as a child like playing these like old school games i felt like well this this kind of format is going to be perfect for recreating some of those old school game experiences that's exactly what i did at nokia with uh, a game called space impact which i i, I wrote for the the nokia 3310 device and it subsequently got embedded on I think about 150 million plus devices like all around the world. So there was a time for a couple of years where I couldn't go like anywhere in the world without somebody be, I could hear someone playing my game because the, 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 the sound effects were pretty uh, easily recognizable. And it was a, a side-scrolling shoot-em-up game really inspired by the old games like Defender and Scramble and like these like very early arcade games that I'd spent my childhood playing and uh, you know playing pumping coins into the arcade machines to play them. So was a really uh, an opportunity to 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 really like build out like cool games on a totally new platform and uh, yeah I found it actually very exciting and it was a really fantastic place to work at that time. So you mentioned you were initially a bit skeptical about mobile. What eventually won you over and attracted you to the space? You know, at this time when I didn't have a mobile phone, none of my friends had a mobile phone, but you know, spending just a, a small amount of time in that environment 
I became completely convinced that actually mobile was going to be huge. And, you know, this, this, these devices were really cool. Even then, you know, they were, these were not smartphones, but uh, they were already pretty exciting. And like SMS was just taking off and becoming a thing. And that was like the coolest thing ever, you know, like to be able to type messages and have them get delivered directly to your friends, much more immediate than email and much more personal than email as well. Like it's like directly to like somebody, whatever they're doing, they get it like right there on their, on their screen. And I could see, you know, also if it was in an R&D facility, I was seeing stuff that wasn't going to come out into the marketplace for like a couple of years. So I could really also really see the future of mobile. And it was a very exciting place. And, and so I, yeah, I very quickly became completely convinced that mobile was going to be incredibly disruptive and incredibly empowering technology. So as you mentioned, very few people had their own mobile phones and the industry was very much in its infancy. And so how was growth approached at that time? Really at the time when uh, you know, I was working for Nokia, this, this, I was writing embedded games that basically shipped with the hardware. There was no such thing as, as downloadable content at that time. So there I'd say I can't even really talk about growth. It was, it was, a, you know, it was a hardware shipping game. But if my, my next role, which was with an independent mobile games publisher on the south coast of the UK called IOMO, there that was already into the next phase of mobile, which was uh, like downloadable Java games, which you got from usually from operator portals. And there, there was like a sort of an interesting, interesting dynamic. I'm not sure if you could call it growth, at least not in the way that we define it today. But like I can certainly talk about how companies would would grow during that time and, and what, what differentiated a successful mobile games publisher from a not so successful one. And it was mostly down to, to sales efforts, basically, and, and sales resources and the relationships that you could build with mobile carriers. And at, at that time, it was really all about the carriers controlled access to the consumers. So, you know, you had a mobile plan with your, you know, T-Mobile or whoever. And as a, as a publisher, if I wanted to get my games in the hands of T-Mobile customers, I had to sell into T-Mobile. And like, not just like T-Mobile Global, but actually to each of like the T-Mobile like uh, carriers in, in individual countries, which, you know, in Europe alone, there was, you know, hundreds of carriers. So to actually have, you know, you, you really needed like a, a European or global sales team in order to get your product distributed and into the hands of users. There, there was not just no such thing as an app store where they could, they would just go and, and download stuff. Content was, was really closely controlled by the carriers and hence growth and success of games and their publishers was largely down to the relationships with those carriers. And it was really like a sales-driven exercise. The other way that you might grow or at least become, have a more attractive product for, for carriers and, and be hence more likely to get on more carrier portals would be through licensing major IP. So at IOMA, we license a lot of like movie content, uh, TV show licenses, celebrity licenses, you know, sports, things like this. You're kind of like kind of classic IP licensing thing in order to have a, a stronger product that the, um, the carrier might be more interested in. But that, of course, just shifts a lot of risk on behalf of the publisher. So I mean, think about how the App Store is now developed into a very, you know, now it's now there's a very democratized system where really anyone can publish anything. Sure, there's still a relatively high barrier to developing a, a really great mobile app, but the playing field's wide open now compared to what it used to be. Wow, that sounds really exciting and a great experience we've gone through, I'm sure. And so eventually your career led you to leading growth teams at SoundCloud for a few years. And while I'm sure most people have heard about it, can you tell us a bit more about what SoundCloud is all about? So SoundCloud, yeah, for those who, who aren't familiar with it, it's a platform for creators of audio of all types. So there's a lot of musicians on the platform, for sure, DJs, podcasters, comedians, political speech, like any kind of like recorded audio. It's really giving that platform for the creators of that audio to share their work and, and build an audience. So it's kind of like a two-sided marketplace in a way that you've got people uploading their content to share with the world and 
um, also discovery mechanisms and like, uh, you know, a listener app where, where listeners can, can find great content to listen to. And uh, in terms of like tackling growth at SoundCloud, I was brought on um, basically to help them with that transition to, to mobile. They were very strong on web at the time and they, they already had native apps for iOS and Android, but like they weren't, they were very small teams. They weren't getting a lot of love, but they really could see that there was a big opportunity for, they really needed to capitalize on that opportunity to be part of that shift to mobile. And that's really what I joined to help them do. I had a couple of different roles there over the years. I was there four and a half years. I joined in like 2012 and I left in uh, 2016. But yeah, I was focused in all of those roles um, to greater or lesser extent on on mobile growth. My most recent role there, which was running for about a year and a half, uh, user retention team, which is part of the, the, the broader growth effort, again, focused on mobile. Yeah, absolutely. It's an amazing platform that, you know, obviously still continues to serve a, a big purpose to a lot of people out there who are creating audio only or audio focused content uh, as a way to share their work and, and continue to build an audience. And so for many years, you were responsible for the overall mobile growth of SoundCloud. So how did you approach this challenge? Yeah, uh, SoundCloud was in like a very fortunate position in many ways that it's, it's quite a social platform. There's a lot of like social interaction on there. And because creators like particularly like you know, musicians and, uh, and audio creators, you know, they they're trying to build an audience. So they want to share their stuff. The reason they're using the platform is to to reach more people. So there's kind of an inherent virality in the platform in that if you give these creators a way to host their audio and you give them a, a bunch of tools to help them share it with more people, they'll share it all day long because it's in their interest to promote their own work, which means the virality was, was fantastic. And, and SoundCloud had a lot of viral potential that many other products don't have. So we put a lot of effort into optimizing the performance of sharing flows and integrations with you know other social channels that were worked as amplifiers, such as like Twitter and Facebook. We did like deep bespoke integrations with those platforms to make sure that the audio that was shared by Sam, uh, over SoundCloud um, to these networks was uh, creating a really great experience in the Twitter feed or in the Facebook feed. Yeah, that was massive for us. Search, as you might imagine, massive opportunity for SEO when you've got hundreds of millions of tracks hitting the platform. You know, we want to make sure that stuff's well indexed. And like we did a lot of work there to, to make that stuff more visible to search engines and to make sure it was being crawled properly by Google. And that comes on to quite nicely to mobile web, which was really like our biggest channel in terms of like we had a ton of relatively low intent or low engaged traffic there. A lot of people maybe clicking on a, uh, a share link or um, coming by a Google search on their mobile devices landing on uh, a SoundCloud track page from on mobile web, where we had actually a full HTML5 player. It's actually a pretty good listening experience. But what we saw uh, by looking at the metrics, we could see that these users were bouncing, like, you know, to a large extent, they would, they, they would land, they would listen to a track, and then they would bounce. And so the challenge was really about how do we optimize to, to bring more of those users into the native mobile app, where we have more opportunity to help them stick around. We know like from looking at the retention numbers that they're going to be a lot more sticky there. And also it creates a very good positive feedback loop because every one of those users who we get to download the app helps to drive us up the rankings in the app store, which means that we have more organic visibility there. So sort of understanding those dynamics and optimizing for them was a big part of the, the, the growth story. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge challenge to undertake. And I think we all really appreciate how you broke it down into those three areas. So within those pillars, what are some of the metrics that you look at in order to gauge success? How do you know you're having an impact on growth? Yeah, great question. So it sounds like we uh, yeah, we had a, like a North Star metric, which was really the kind of driving force for a long time in terms of 
everything kind of at least on the listener side of the org, which was like where a lot of the effort was was being put in. The uh, the metric was listening time, and that's ultimately what we were trying to optimize for: longer listening time. So listening time could be optimized by bringing back people for more sessions in a in a week or you know a time period, so that they're coming back and listening more often, or that they're listening for longer, or ideally both. You know that they're you know the the ideal would be that they're listening 24 hours a day, but you know, like we wanted to get them at least as close to that as possible. That they really like when they are listening to music, they're they're doing it on SoundCloud, and you know, finding new ways to get them to come back and listen more often or for longer. And really, like every effort in the company was somehow tied to listening time because it was like even for the creators, it benefits them if people are listening to their their tracks more and you know that they're getting more like listening time on, on their stuff that's also you know positive for them so it's also sort of a creative metric too even though it's got a, a consumer focus apart from that like which yeah was really like the the kind of guiding light in terms of like we'll be doing a good job for the company and, and growing that listening time metric we looked a lot um, particularly in the retention team which i mentioned that uh, i was running for a while we looked at listener retention so again like retention but through that listening lens so not just did the user come back, but did they come back and listen to something? So again, really like still pointing at this North Star metric of listening time. But then, you know, it's also important to look at things like user retention, which is like, you know, the more generic, did they come back? Partially that's useful because it's more easy to compare with, um, you know, other like industry benchmarks and you can kind of see how you're doing versus competitors and things because it's, it's possible to sort of get a good feel for like, what is it sort of a reasonable retention? So yeah, we look at like day one retention, week one retention, month one retention, they, they would be like pretty critical ones for us. And then, yeah, like a, something which, which I call growth accounting, which is like really looking every week, uh, every week or every month or, you know, every period, at like what is the constitution of our active users? So we have basically like, you can break your active user number down into new, repeat and reactivated users. And I think it's really important to look at not just like, is our overall active user numbers growing, which is already helpful, like to look at your monthly active users or your daily active users and see that number increasing, but also to understand a little bit deeper, you know, what's causing that growth or that declining growth, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's falling down. So if your active users number is growing, but it's really growing mostly because you're just acquiring tons of new users every week, but you're actually not able to kind of convert them into repeat users who are kind of coming back week after week, and you're not doing a good job of reactivating the lapsed users, then that's not a very sustainable situation. So it's important to sort of have that balance and ideally be growing that repeat bucket so that more and more of your active users are users who are coming back time after time and, you know, staying active and engaged. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And so through all the experiments that you were running and the work you were doing, you ended up creating the mobile growth stack. So in a nutshell, what's it all about and what drove you to create it? Uh, yeah, yeah. So the mobile growth stack yeah, came about. I, I, I put that together, uh, the first, first versions while I was at SoundCloud. It started out as just a way to help me kind of structure my thinking about growth and, and about mobile and really to help me figure out how to do my job properly like uh, or better. And uh, yeah, basically what it is, it's uh, what I call a lightweight framework for strategic mobile growth. It's a one-page cheat sheet for growth pra practitioners, so for anyone sort of thinking about or working on growth, that encapsulates the common activities that might be employed to drive acquisition, engagement and retention, and monetization. And these are pretty universal business goals, like applicable to you know, any business, or at least any consumer business. And then by considering sort of everything that you might want to do or everything you could do in this like one page overview, it actually helps to kind of like focus in on the things which actually would make sense, you know, the, the components that you're going to build your strategy out of. So 
sometimes people get a bit overwhelmed by the mobile growth stack because you know it's got quite complicated over the years it's gone through a few iterations it's essentially for those who haven't seen it it's like a like a big chart lots of different boxes kind of organized into different layers representing these different business goals and with like boxes representing like activities and channels that might be relevant for these for these particular layers so there's a lot of there's a lot of information in there and sometimes i think there's a misconception that what I'm saying with the mobile growth stack is you have to do all these things, you know, to be successful at mobile growth. And uh, that's absolutely not what the point of the, the, the framework is. It's actually to help you kind of consider all of the things that you could do to enable you to actually decide which of the things you're not going to do and really focus on the things which you think are going to have like the most impact. And that's really what being strategic is all about, right? It's about kind of discarding certain scenarios and going with the scenarios which you hope are going to be most successful. And um, yeah, that's that's what people are using it for. Yeah, I came up with the, the, the idea while working at SoundCloud, like I say, just to really help me structure my own work. Uh, initially, it was just something personal for me. Um, and then I published it on Medium, I think back in like 2014. And it got like really widely picked up and distributed and people were sharing it everywhere in the industry. And yeah, it's kind of, I've, I've sort of kept developing it um, now also with my business partner, Moritz here at Feature. We've seen it like really go a long way. We've, we've gone through a few revisions of it, even to a point where like last year, uh, Google actually used a uh, slightly Googlified version. So sort of a bit more Google centric uh, terminology in some of it, but they, they essentially based a presentation that they did at uh, the Playtime, Google Playtime events on the mobile growth stack. And it was basically a, a session on you know how to educate their, their Android developer community, how to how they could use this framework to you know drive growth with their, their Android apps. So the, the mobile growth stack itself is, is kind of platform agnostic, like you know it's it's equally applicable to, to iOS and Android. But it was it was great to see Google kind of you know really endorsing it in that way and that's that's a huge compliment and a, a huge validation to, to the framework I think. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. I remember when you did launch that uh, that Medium post and, and coming across the framework for the first time and just looking at it in all its clarity. Um, it was it was really very impressive to see everything so methodically laid out, and, and it just made perfect sense as somebody who was you know still starting a career in growth at the time. Uh, it, it was really just cool to see the type of work that you had done, and obviously kudos to you for creating such a valuable tool that you know even Google would use it in at, or use a version of it in their conferences. That's that's really a testament to how powerful it is. And so today you're a partner at Feature, a mobile growth consultancy that you helped launch in Berlin. So what really motivated you to launch this agency? Uh, yeah, so we've uh, we just had our one year anniversary at Feature, but by the way, it's uh, it's spelled P H I T U R E. It's a kind of a difficult spelling slash uh, pronunciation thing, but yeah, it's like fee with the the, the Greek letter fee. But uh, yeah, anyway, yeah. So we just had our one year anniversary, so we've been at it about a year now. With the kind of uh, increased visibility and, and profile of the mobile growth stack, you know, I was speaking at conferences and I was getting approached increasingly by all sorts of people, mobile app developers and growth practitioners who, you know, wanted help and advice and you know we're, we're looking looking to me and, and also to my, my colleague Moritz is, uh, who's also working with me in the, in the growth team at SoundCloud they really sort of saw us as experts and and were kind of you know keen to get our advice on a range of topics relating to growth and uh, I think we were and, and continue to be very excited to help a range of companies in different verticals with mobile growth challenges and we set up feature basically so that we could so that we could learn more you know we can work, learn more working with a range of companies then we can going really deep on like one problem and you know i had been at soundcloud four and a half years at that point so i think it was just like a natural time for me to kind of move on and and take on a new challenge and um yes yeah, it's, it's been fantastic to to work with such amazing companies we're, we're working currently with people like headspace it's a meditation app skyscanner where they're in the travel comparison sector 
company called Idagio based here in Berlin. They have a classical music streaming um, startup. So really, we're working with like you know a bunch of different apps, like all really really cool, interesting teams and, and interesting project products, um, and helping them with with a range of stuff. Like we do sometimes work uh, this thing called a growth audit, which is typically how we kind of start up with a new client, where we we go in, we look at everything really deeply in terms of like we do a lot of analysis on their data, we ask a lot of questions, and we we work with the client to apply the mobile growth stack and sort of identify opportunities and build out a growth backlog. Essentially, the, the backlog being like what we would do if we were running the growth team for them, or if we, we were running the growth team there, this is where we would start. You know, and, and often out of that, they they, they want to want us to stick around and help them sort of deliver on specific initiatives. Yeah, you know, we we do a lot of app store optimization work, uh, a lot of mo- mobile marketing automation stuff too. So like things like push notifications, multi-channel lifecycle campaigns, that kind of stuff. So through all the different work that you end up doing, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen larger companies or anyone really make when it comes to growth? I think like you know, I can break that down to like a sort of a couple of at least sort of two different areas. Like there's there's tech mistakes, which I think. Typically, either that there's a sort of integration problems, like either through lack of planning or just technical difficulties in like actually getting all the various tools and, and things which are which are maybe collecting or working on data to actually talk to each other in a way that really allows you to sort of leverage the, the real power of like interconnectedness of that data. Um, so if it's too siloed and you've got like you know a bunch of data that's only available in your attribution provider and a bunch of data that's sitting in your data warehouse. And maybe maybe other data just sitting in your mobile marketing automation framework. And if you if you're not kind of unifying that stuff, then you're going to miss like some big tricks. On a sort of more organizational level, I think you know what we often see is teams that are working kind of at cross purposes. Maybe they're too siloed, or you know there's maybe sort of internal politics really getting in the way of of like working together to actually fight the competition. There's often a lot of sort of a lot of discussion goes on internally sometimes in. in in, in some companies to basically arguing about what's the right approach. Now, a constructive discussion based on data, ideally, like, you know, can be can be really helpful, you know, and it can help the whole team get to a better result. But like what we often see is maybe it's a brand comms team or a design team not really being on board with data-driven experimental kind of growth efforts. You know, particularly, for example, you say you've got performance marketing, which, you know, is by definition very performance-driven. Um, and that can often kind of be at odds with, like brand marketing, which is a bit more sort of aspirational, a little bit more fluffy, maybe. Uh, and I'm not like you know saying that either one of those is more important or better than the other. I think they're both important, but we definitely see sometimes that companies struggle to reconcile these kind of different ideological disciplines and to really kind of get to a point where they're kind of able to work really like cross-functionally with growth. So I think it's really important to work cross-functionally. And I guess the other kind of mistake that I see happening a lot is like. A lot of discussion often on build versus buy. Like, should we buy in some best-in-class technology that's going to help us do this thing? Or should we build it ourselves? Because we've got all these engineers, right? We're an engineering-heavy company. We build stuff. That's what we do. So we should build this, right? And particularly when it comes to growth tech and, and marketing tech, I think companies often try to build stuff and they spend a, they waste a lot of time building something to you know out to a level where they realize finally that Actually, we, you know, we, we've lost a year's worth of impact trying to build what's actually we could have just licensed for, okay, maybe for quite a lot of money, but something which actually could have done the job much better. And I'm not saying that buy is, is always the right decision in that build versus buy debate, but we do see organizations spending a lot of time debating build versus buy. And, and usually what we see, at, at least like so far, is that the ones that end up like trying to build everything, they do lose a lot of momentum in the marketplace 
while they're building that stuff out. But of course, at some scale, it usually does make sense. It, there's usually a tipping point where you end up starting to build more stuff in-house. Absolutely. Those are some great points. And so you mentioned it briefly earlier, but App Store optimization or ASO is actually only one piece of the entire mobile growth stack. And recently, your partner Moritz at Feature recently co-wrote the ASO book. So why is ASO so important for mobile apps? Yeah, it's, I think if anything, it's, you know, it's more important than ever. Uh, I'm not just saying that because we also offer ASO services, but you know, if, if you think about it, the App Store, uh, or the, the App Stores, and I'm talking primarily about the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store, you know, they're one of the most important parts of the whole like, kind of chain, right? That, like, because every, all your traffic goes through there. Like if you're distributing, if you have a native mobile app, every single one of you uses has interacted with your, your store listing. And probably there are millions of people who interacted with your store listing and are not users of your app because they decided not to install it. And this doesn't matter whether you're driving traffic there from a, you know, a paid marketing campaign or whether they're discovering the app organically through search or because you're featured in the App Store, which is, you know, it's great if you can get editorial featuring. But, you know, all roads lead to the App Store. So you better make sure that your, your App Store presence is, you know, as, as polished and as um, optimized as possible, ideally, like, you know, based, based on data from doing experiments to, to really make sure that you're making the most of, like, all of the traffic that's hitting it, you know. And that's also a big multiplier on any paid acquisition that you do. But also making sure that it's very discoverable, I often use the, um, the example of uh, it's a store that sells every product in the world. Like imagine if like instead of going to your jeans shop when you want to buy a pair of jeans and your supermarket when you need uh, you know, some, some food, you know, if you had to go to one shop for anything that you wanted, that, that's basically what the app store is. It's, it's, a, it's a store that sells every product in the world. It's got millions and millions of products in it. And you know, you, you've got these people wandering around the store trying to like, find the products that they want. You want to make it as easy as possible. You want them like really well signposted. You want them to be as discoverable as possible. And you want your product to be in as most attractive packaging as possible when, when they do find it on the shelf. Because there's like 20 other products that are pretty similar in terms of their, their benefits. Uh, and probably a bunch of them are free. You know? So you, know, you really have to make your product stand out and, and convince them very quickly that it's the right one for them. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just on the ebook, that's uh, that's something which uh, Moritz and uh, another guy called Gabe from uh, another agency called Incipia they co-wrote it. There's also a bunch of guest posters from across the industry. So yeah, it's really like a pretty advanced guide to uh, app store optimization, fully up to date with the iOS 11 changes. It's, yeah, I didn't have much involvement in that, but like hats off to, to Moritz and Gabe. They they've done an awesome job. Yeah, and uh, just on that note, we also have uh, asostack.com, which is, you know, as you mentioned, uh, ASO is just like one element of the mobile growth stack. But Moritz actually has been developing out a, a framework specifically around ASO that goes a lot deeper on that particular topic. And we have like, yeah, more info on that at asostack.com and all the content on there is free. Absolutely. And we'll completely make sure that we link to that so that people can check out the book and the site and all those cool resources. And so on that note, are there any other resources like books, blog posts, videos, podcasts, anything that you've come across recently and really enjoyed or ones that you keep coming back to? Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a few like resources out there, which I think are, you know, like favorites for me and, and great, great sources of you know, inspiration or information. There's a guy called Eric Seufert. Uh He runs Mobile Dev Memo, which is a really great industry. Uh, he does a podcast sometimes, but it's, it's mostly usually um, just sort of on, on, on a sort of blog format. He writes some really great essays. He's an economist by sort of background, and that, that really shows through you know, the kind of depth uh, and structure of his thinking around the sort of industry and, and where it's heading. So for big picture stuff, I, you know, I love Mobile Dev Memo. 
for like a lot of like really great content on App Store optimization, apart from um, you know our ASO stack, which I already mentioned. In Scipio, they have a really great blog and they're putting out a ton of content. So yeah, we we really like the stuff they're doing and and, and the way that they're they're writing about stuff. I'd say like the real like kind of legend in the industry, as far as I'm concerned, particularly from like a retention perspective, Brian Balfour. He um, you know he has his own blog, coelevate.com. Uh, but more recently, he's been putting out with um, I think working with Susan Sue, who joined the Reforge team. They're putting out amazing content on Reforge.com. They also have like a paid course for growth practitioners, like a professional level course. I've had the pleasure of doing an early version of that course, and it's I can I can say it's really one of the best like professional learning resources in the industry. And they're giving like a lot of great content out for free on on the Reforge blog. So um, yeah, definitely worth a look. And uh, yeah, I'd also call out Sean Ellis. He's a uh, founder of uh, growthhackers.com and also sort of like a, a legend in the industry. Uh, he recently put out a book called Hacking Growth with a guy called Morgan Brown. It's a really great book, like a really great primer on like a lot of growth fundamentals. And Sean Ellis actually coined the term growth hacking, which has become ubiquitous in the industry. And his, and his site, growthhackers.com, also has a great community where it's kind of a bit more interactive. You can, you can sort of ask questions and they have uh, AMAs every week. And yeah, uh, I'd say those resources are great. Yeah, absolutely. Those are some more great resources and definitely we'll make sure that we link to those so other people can check them out if they haven't had a chance to yet. And so we've talked about a lot of different things throughout the course of the episode. Do you have any last thoughts or personal mottos that you live by and you think other people should know about? Yeah, I, I think that's that's kind of a, a tough question, but I, I guess if I had to kind of you know settle on one, it's probably like done is better than perfect. So what I mean by that is like, you know, it's it's not like just do a sloppy job and it's it's fine. Just like leave it. That's that's not really the not what I take away from that phrase. It's just like better to actually ship something, better to run an experiment, better to you know get a first version out there that's hopefully good enough. Like this comes back to like you know definition of a minimum viable product versus just a minimum product. But um, yeah, just this idea that like better to you know have something done uh, and then iterate on it than to kind of be trying to make something perfect and, and never really get to, you know, get it to a finished state or get it out in front of users. So, I mean, you can, you can apply this in many areas of your life, but I think it's particularly applicable for growth and try to make sure that, you know, we're, we're also sort of really like pushing this with our clients a feature that, you know, much better to, to do something this week and, and improve on it next week than spend four weeks trying to get it to a level where, you know, it might, it might fail anyway, particularly with growth experiments. So better to, get it out in a, in a sort of rough state and then see if it's showing promise. And if so, improve on it. If not, ditch it. So it's a very long-winded way, but yeah, done is better than perfect, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. This is great advice. And, and I love how you tied it back to growth and, and you know, launching experiments and, and constantly iterating. Andy, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Really appreciate uh, your insights. Thanks, Franco. It's been a pleasure. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear about it and have you share it with friends. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at hack to start or drop us an email, hey at hacktostart.com. You can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding Hack to Start on Apple Podcasts, Breaker Audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.